Romans chapter 15. Is this you? Romans chapter 15. Hopefully, if you didn't come with a copy of the scriptures, there's one near or around you that you could grab. If you uh, go to the New Testament and uh, turn to the letters near the end of the New Testament, you'll find the book of Romans, one of the largest letters there. If you go to the end, we're going to look at uh, what is kind of the landing paragraphs there. I feel like a bit of a a circuit-riding preacher this morning, so coming in uh, from Raleigh, and uh, this sermon made a lot of sense at 6.30 this morning in my truck, so we'll see if it still makes sense at 10.30 when uh, when we communicate in front of a group of people. one thing we need to do at the outset, I want to tell you, if you look around this morning, there's a lot of yins, right? Um, we have, over the course of the last three months or so, really over the course of the last year, uh, been trying to determine uh, what's the best utilization of the space that God's given us. How do we take advantage of this facility and some of the limited parking constraints that we have to uh, care for a church that's, uh, that's growing? And uh, every Sunday, I kind of I'm like, I don't know who half you yuns are, all right? Uh, I know some of you, but I don't know a lot of you. And they're just new faces coming and uh, seats that are full on Sundays. And so as we've met with architects and considered facilities, we've investigated everything from uh, just relocating to a different, different property, tearing down buildings and rebuilding space that would hold uh, more people in one worship space. And all of that just really seems cost prohibitive. It doesn't seem wise for us to relocate uh, from this property, and it doesn't seem wise to uh, tear down a building and try to put up a, a, a auditorium space that would hold five or 600 people. So with that in mind, we're going to shift to two services after the first of the year. Uh, January 9th, so that's the second Sunday in January, giving you plenty of heads up so you can kind of get your head in the game uh, with how your family's going to adjust uh, to the move. But we're going to create more space for us to live on mission, more space for us to invest and invite people, more space for guests when they show up to not walk into a room that's slam-packed and there aren't two seats uh, together. We're going to try to create some space for that. We'll have two services, 9.30 and 11 o'clock, so everybody's going to have to change. Everybody's got to change their rhythms. We'll have 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and here's the ask. Rather than saying, I'm going to pick my lane and run in it, what we're going to ask is that everybody commits to being here both hours. One hour, you're going to serve or study together. Uh, We'll have core classes uh, for you and opportunities for you to be a greeter, uh, to park, to usher, to keep kiddos so that others can worship. So you study, serve one hour, and then the next hour you attend worship or vice versa. So you'd worship at 9.30, study, serve at 11, or you would study, serve at 9.30 and worship uh, at 11. Brandon, next week we have our family meeting Sunday night. Brandon's going to outline how we're going to lay out the core classes. Some of that's on the screen, so you can begin to brainstorm already. How we're going to lay out the core classes, answer any questions that you have, and uh, hopefully challenge us all for how we can be strategic uh, in this adjustment. But I want you to know it's coming. Uh, I want you to kind of get, again, mentally engaged for some adjustment uh, after the first of the year. And all of this is done in an effort uh, for us to be more strategic to live on mission. It's not to have the biggest church in the city, but it's to open up some seats so that when you invite guests, when new people show up, that we can really on-ramp them into the life of the local church while being uh, good stewards of the resources and the facility that God has given us. So that's all we'll say. Now we'll placeholder that, put a pin in it for conversation next week at our monthly family meeting. With that in mind, let's pray together. Then we'll turn our attention to God's word. Father, we do uh, give you thanks for a growing church. We give you thanks that 
uh, you continue to send people our way, uh, both those looking for a healthy church and those who are um, cut off from you and and or from the local church, and that every Sunday we see uh, new faces who uh, show up at this facility, and we have opportunity to love and serve and press them into the life of sanctification and mission. We thank you that your mission is active here in Greenville, that you're still saving people, drawing people to yourself. Thank you that on this day we have a a placeholder where we get to, to stand in a parking lot and see neighbors and coworkers and friends hang out and give candy. And that reminds us of just the mass of humanity, so many of whom uh, are living wayward, wounded, cut off from saving faith. So we pray that you would increase our appetite for mission, that you would make us strategic in that mission, and that you would give the leaders of this church wisdom to know how best to steward uh, the, the things that we have, like buildings, uh, to go about that missionary work. Uh, we ask this morning that you would use your word uh, to compel us to that task, for Christ's sake. Amen. So Friday night, I was with uh, the pastor of the largest Baptist church in Russia, and we were talking about the work of God in his country, and uh, he was recounting the story of his grandfather, who was the pastor, kind of... Uh, grandfather and father, and now he is pastor there. And uh, as his grandfather was pastoring uh, the church uh, there in Russia, uh, they had one Bible for a church of 600 people. And uh, so everyone, this is fascinating, uh, everyone got three days with the Bible. And uh, uh, they would rotate the Bible around to the various church members and the various families. And he said, with tears in his eyes, still recounting this story, he said people would dress up you know, for their, for their three days with the Bible, right? That it would be uh, a, a commemorative moment. Like our family has the Bible. We can read and understand it and then we pass it to another. And so I was listening to him think, I was like, man, that's the posture I want us to have this morning, right? What a great, like you have, you have like 18 Bibles and phones with Bibles. And so as we come to the word, like with that kind of, like let's dress up to hear from the Lord, this morning, let's have that kind of edge of our seat excitement that God uh, could speak to us. We're finishing a series uh, on mission, on the Great Commission. Uh, if you've been with us for the four weeks, we've done the motive for our mission, which is uh, God's worthy of worship. It's worthy of worship from all peoples. Second week, the authority behind the mission. Remember, kind of the, the because I said so idea. He's the king of all, so he can tell us to do whatever and we should bow the knee to, to be a part of what he's called us to do. Last week, Robert led us in the, the conversation of, like, w what are we doing? What's the goal of our mission? And that is to make disciples, uh, that we want to see people come to faith in Jesus and matured in conformity to Christ in and through the local church. This morning, I'm going to just attempt to tie a bow on it and say, what do we do with all that? Like, what, what, what is the street cred of that for you and I, and we're going to use Paul's concluding thoughts in Romans 15 to guide that discussion. Perhaps an image will help. Airports are a classic illustration of the theme I want to press us to this morning. People do airports differently. You have the too cool to travel person, if you've been in an airport, like the person that like looks like they just rolled out of bed 15 minutes ago and decided an airport would be a cool place for me to go this morning. No attempt uh, to prepare or to dress appropriately for a public venue like an airport. You have the business professional barely acknowledging that it's odd to conduct a million-dollar business deal while you're taking your shoes off to go through security. 
And then you have the too-stressed-for-life mom, wrangling angry children and hoping that stuffing them full of cinnamon buns will keep them quiet so that they can get on the stinking plane. What do all those people have in common, though? They're all going somewhere. They may be going there differently, but they're all going somewhere. And so are you, every one of you. Regardless of your spiritual condition, whether you're a believer or not, your life is on a trajectory. It's moving. You're aging. You're maturing, hopefully. You got dreams and goals that you want to accomplish. No one among us sits still, at least not for long. The challenge for us isn't moving, but it's moving in the right directions. Run with my image, just getting on the right plane or moving in step with God's purposes in the world. I think Paul captures this beautifully for us in this paragraph from Romans 15, beginning in verse 14, the end of Paul's letter, and he gives us some sense of the direction for all of God's people, beginning in verse 14. My brothers and sisters, I'm reminded uh, myself and convinced about you that you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. Nevertheless, I've written to remind you more boldly on some points because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purposes is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to boast in Christ Jesus regarding what pertains to you. I would not dare say anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by word and deed for obedience of the Gentiles. By the power of miraculous signs and by the power of God's Spirit, as a result, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named, so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who were not told about him will see him. And those who have not heard will understand. In this paragraph, there are three directions or types of movement that we see implied or clearly stated among God's people. I want to look at these three forms of movement and come back to consider what each of these directions necessitates then for each of us. And since two weeks ago, I broke my rule of using sports illustrations in the sermon, uh, and it's World Series time and perhaps a closing game tonight, I'm going to use the classic description of a home run, going, 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 to capture these three directions for God's people. Going, going, and then gone. And we're going to start with the end, the ball clearing the fence, with the idea of gone, and work our way backwards. Again, let's consider, I want you to look, I've tried to highlight it uh, as we move through the notes. In verse 15, I want you to consider the descriptions here of mission that is somewhere else or something other or that purposes a direction that is moving from where you are to something very, very different. He says, in describing his life's mission, verse 16, that he was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Then later in that same sentence, God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, 
He worked through word and deed for the obedience of the Gentiles. And then most explicitly in verse 20, my aim is to preach the gospel where? Where Christ has not been named. There's a certain geographical otherness implied in Paul's understanding of his personal mission, his life's mission. Paul was commissioned or called by God to be a a missionary, a sent one to the Gentiles. And this sent one necessitated uh, movement for him. Consider, I think I've got the scriptures on the screen from Acts 9. This is his original call and understanding of his life's mission, his conversion on the Damascus Road. The Lord says to him, go for this man is my chosen instrument. He's talking here to Ananias who would go lay hands on Paul. Go for this one is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, to kings and Israelites. And I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Then later when Paul is recounting this conversion experience, he pictures it the same way. He said to me, this is Acts 22, 21 and 22. He said to me, go because, and then notice the language here, I'm gonna send you far away to the Gentiles. To say that this was a big deal is a radical understatement. As, Paul pointed, or as Robert pointed out last week, God's work at this point in redemptive history was largely centered on the people of God, the Jewish nation. The Gentiles, simply non-Jews, were thought to be cut off outside of the activity of God's saving work. So God radically saves and calls and I want you to notice, I think there's something interesting we can surmise here. The, the, the conversion and call happen concurrently. I mean, he saves Paul and commissions Paul in, in this same activity. And he appoints this once staunch opponent of the early disciples to be an ambassador that he would use to take the message of the gospel to places that it's not traveled. He would go, he would proclaim Jesus in major towns, often starting with reasoning about Jesus in the synagogues. He would see people come to faith, he would establish new churches from those converts, and then he would move on to new places to continue the work. So if we were to summarize, again, we're going, going, gone. This is the description of gone. How would we portray this type of direction in sending? One, it's cross-cultural. It's cross-cultural. Meaning, he would have to leave what was familiar and common in order to go to new places with new patterns of behavior and new culture in order for people to hear about Jesus. In fact, it would be necessary for Paul to continue to cross cultures. Looking back in verse 20, we see that he was committed to preaching the gospel where Jesus was not already named, which serves as rocket fuel for Paul's travels. Soon as Jesus is named and the church is established. Paul's bouncing on somewhere else to continue that work. It was cross-cultural. Secondly, it was life-redefining. Life-redefining, meaning Paul could not do this in his spare time. It would be all-encompassing. He would orient the entirety of his life around getting the gospel to places and establishing the work places that it was not already known. In fact, this is what happens in the book of Acts. We see three primary mission trips that Paul takes over the course of basically a decade. And remember, we're not at the point that transportation uh, isn't uh, round trip from Rome at this point. 
We're setting out on journeys. We're committing to this work. We're establishing tent-making labor so that we can continue this work. There's a sense of drop everything and go. And then it was costly. Remember back in Acts 9. Even from the beginning, it was clear to Paul that this call was a call to suffering and persecution. And it was a pattern that follows Paul throughout the book of Acts. Everywhere he goes, persecution and suffering follows. This is his recounting this kind of total life in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent night and day in the open sea. Frequent journeys, I faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things, daily pressure on me, my concern for the churches." He crosses culture, he gives his life to this work, and he gives his life to the work in the face of suffering, persecution, and great cost. And it's important here for us to put a placeholder in the reality that there are people, we praise God for the Paul, for the early apostles, and for those that continue to follow in this pattern. It's why it's a bit disingenuous. You often hear the statement, everyone's a missionary. Well, yes and no. As we're going to establish in just a minute, everyone's a missionary in the sense that they're commissioned to be ambassadors for God. But not everybody is a missionary in the same sense. Cross-cultural, language learning, life redefining, packing up bags, moving to other countries, suffering, facing hardship, is different in scope and scale. And we don't need to disincentivize or communicate in some way by saying everyone is a missionary, that there aren't those uniquely called and appointed by God to go, to be gone. Cross-cultural, life-redefining, costly going. For some, it's going to be lifetime going. For others, it's going to be seasonal going. The storybooks that you have in your seat testify to some of those who are gone from among us. Some who are going to training venues even as we speak to spend seven, eight weeks preparing to move to really difficult places to testify to the gospel of Jesus in tears saying goodbye to those that they will not see for years. What do those who are gone need from us? They need relationship. They need to know that we honor them, that we love them, that we care for them, and that we remember them. One of the reasons you have these storybooks, and we're going to go to links to give you prayer newsletters and other ways that you can tap in, is you would be surprised at how easy it is for those who are gone to be out of sight, out of mind. And church, it's incumbent upon us that we consistently remember them that we go out of our way to encourage them, and that we support them. As you'll read, if you consider the paragraphs in these missionary storybooks, the labor that these individuals are doing is predicated on the giving of churches like ours. And praise God, for you, maybe it's never cross-cultural, life-redefining, or costly going. 
may be at a life season where that's not the reality for you, but you can invest. You can hold the rope for those who are gone. But this isn't the only direction of missionary movement implied in our paragraph. Verse 14, go back to the way Paul begins. He's writing to brothers and sisters in the church at Rome. And he says, I myself am convinced about you that you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, a bit of commentary is required here. This juncture, Paul's writing to people that he's, he's not yet visited. He longs to meet with them, both because of their Christian testimony and because of the strategic nature of the church in Rome. One of the reasons that he hasn't gotten to Rome is because he's been out in the work. He's been gone, and he keeps getting arrested while he's gone, so it, it hinders his ability to visit the church, and um, he's working to collect uh, offering, to collect Uh, resources to contribute to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering great harm at that time. So he's going to the churches to attempt to collect this offering. Again, remember, we're not in Venmo days, so you can't just wire that. You've got to collect it and deliver the resources. So he's doing that, and he's prohibited to get to Rome. And so he writes to them, because he does have a great gift at his disposal. He's a good writer. And uh, since his travel's broken up by lengthy stints in prison, He's got good time to do some writing. Got plenty of time on the hands. So he writes his magnum opus for us in the book of Romans, in the letter to the church in Rome. A great letter that affirms the foundation of the core doctrines of the church. Today on Reformation Sunday, the book of Romans stands as a testimony to us of the central truths that the reformers fought to establish. The Bible alone. Scripture alone, not counsel or church leaders or human interpreters, is authoritative for the church. Grace alone. It's the unmerited favor of God that saves sinners through Jesus' work. Faith alone. That man is justified, made right with God by faith in Jesus, not through attaining their righteousness through moral actions or performance. Christ alone. That Jesus alone is the foundation for our salvation. He is the sole and perfect mediator between God and man. And God's glory alone. Theology should be God-centered, not man-centered, since it is God who is the sole object of worship. Romans chapters 1 through 11 are probably the high watermarks of our Bible of establishing these glorious truths that the reformers fought to bubble back up to the service or recapture in the life of the church. Then in chapter 12 and following, he turns their attention to the so what of those glorious truths. If the Reformation is true, if the Bible alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone is the foundation, then what does that produce in us? And it's all under the header of a life of sacrifice, an offering made to God, a Romans 12, 1 and 2, whole life offering of sacrifice. And he goes on to list all these actions in, verse, in chapters 12 through 16 that would accompany a life of faith. I'll read from Romans 12, verses 9 through 18. Let your love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. 
Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who bless. Uh, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There is great street cred to the glorious truths of the Reformation. It's whole life transformative. And it's whole life transformative in the context of the local church to whom Paul is writing, to the context where they're going to live out these realities. Romans 15, the text just before uh, what we read in our paragraph of consideration this morning. Therefore, I'm in verse 7. Welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with the people. And again, praise the Lord, all the Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. Don't miss the connection. Paul is writing and saying that the gospel is moving forward to the Gentiles, that Gentiles, those who were once cut off, can be grafted into saving faith, a part of God's people. And how will they see, how will they know, how will they testify to the saving activity of God? It is by the everyday, ordinary means of the people of God living out obedience, whole life worship among one another. That it is the local church, the people of the church, brothers and sisters, who, as Paul started in verse 14, are full of goodness, knowledge, and able to instruct one another, who will model for a watching world. First Peter 2 is going to establish this truth as well. The beauty of God's redeeming activity in and among them. And as they show honor, as they love, as they bear burdens, as they live generously, people in the world eavesdrop in and consider, oh, so there is a place of love. There is a place of care and burden-bearing. There is a place where people can be made welcome, be served. The church then serves as a shop window for the Gentiles, where they can eavesdrop in on and see the transformative activity of God among a people. So this is another type of our going. If gone is cross-cultural, life-redefining, and costly, We also go in normal, church-based, spirit-produced activity. We go in very normal, church-based, spirit-produced obedience to Christ. 
This is one way to read the language of the Great Commission. Remember, it starts with the command, go and make disciples of all nations. You may have heard um, some suggest that the language there is, is more akin to as you're going. Right? This is what you're doing. As you're living out this faith, you're making disciples. As you're living and loving and serving, you're doing so with intentionality that others would see the love of God displayed through his salvation in the church. And friends, let me suggest to you that there are people among us right now, like right now, who are checking out the church, given up on the people of God, been hurt, wounded, broken, don't trust people like me behind pulpits speaking authoritative words from God. There are people here for all sorts of reasons that are eavesdropping in and seeing is the faith that you profess validated by the love that you show. And we have a glorious opportunity to go through regular, ordinary deeds of love. And then lastly, one final way that the language of the Great Commission, the language of going, is modeled here, are those, uh, look in verse 19. When Paul writes that uh, kind of culminating his mission, I've gone to the Gentiles, demonstrated by miraculous signs and wonders by the power of God's Spirit. As a result, end of verse 19, he says, I fully proclaimed the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. This is a really odd statement, especially if you consider the geography that's referenced here. I don't know, did we have the map uh, to throw up on the board? Yeah, you probably can't see it fully, but the arrows, are not, I mean, we're not talking Cherrydale to Traveler's Rest here right? We're not talking Cherrydale Point Shopping Center, whatever that is. We're talking a huge swath of geography, huge place, lay of land, of which Paul has tipped his toe in various places along this journey in his three years. Most would suggest that by this point, Paul's established something like 20 to 25 congregations around the scope of that arrow. Notice the language that he uses. He doesn't say, I touched a few bases, but he says, I fully proclaimed the gospel. How, how could he say this? Obviously, he's not talked to everybody in the span of that era. What's he, what's he done? Consider Acts 14. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it's necessary for you to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Acts 14, 27 and 28. After they had arrived, they gathered the church together. They reported everything God had done with them, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent considerable time with the disciples in the church. Acts 16. Paul went through Derb and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him, circumcised him because of the Jews in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they traveled through town, 
They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles in Jerusalem. This is Acts 15. So the, verse 5, churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Chapter 18, Christmas, a leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household, and many of the Corinthians who heard, believed, and were baptized. This scene in Acts 18 is under the header in your Bible, the founding of the Corinthian church, to whom we're going to have a letter written. The founding of the Ephesian church in Acts 20. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned, and what does he summon there in Acts 20? He summons the elders of the church. I'm belaboring a point to establish the reality that Paul can say the work is finished because he started churches with leaders who can faithfully share the gospel and power God's people on mission in that place. He can be encouraged with the work not because he shared with every individual along the swath of that arrow, but because he's got a church with some elders who are intentionally taking upon themselves the responsibility for the missionary task in that place. And like the church in Antioch in Acts 13, what are they going to do? They're going to raise up leaders, and they're going to lay hands on them, and they're going to commission and send them. They're going to take responsibility for adjacent territory and establishing churches. And over the years, guess what happens? There are churches in weird places like Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. Because the message spreads through the establishment of healthy, faithful churches who take the responsibility to recognize and send goners because they're a church of goers. We don't, this morning, all have a responsibility to be gone. I do want to press on you that perhaps more of you have that responsibility than think you do. I do want you to consider, and I think an activity of God's Spirit is to consider your face in this storybook two, three, five years from now. That God is calling and appointing and still commissioning laborers to go with a unique call in their lives cross-culturally. But everyone in this room has the responsibility, if you're a believer in Jesus, to live in love, to practice everyday, church-based, spirit-produced, faithful witness, such that those who eavesdrop on your life catch a sense of the work of God among the people of God, and you have a responsibility to be a part of a healthy church that celebrates and disciples and supports intentional, church-directed, ongoing going. And we're going to marry those two even with something like this afternoon. We put on a fall festival, weird event. Everybody in Greenville does it, right? It's church-directed. It's a strategy. There are people setting up for it now. There's going to be lunch, bounce houses, and all the things, right? There's a thing that the church is doing to attempt to love and serve and connect. But we do those things so that you can have an opportunity to model love and faith and conversation and care among people, that this parking lot could be bustling with a countercultural vibrancy, the people of God. And we do it so that your dinner table can be filled with people who show up at a church directed activity, and because you're intentional and loving and going, that you can meet friends and invest in new relationships, and that you can make those random people who show up on Sunday around here feel welcomed 
received. Why? Because that's the reception that God offers through Christ. And that's what this table reminds us of. If you've been around and know we're kind of increasing our frequency of taking the Lord's Supper. Because it's a reminder for us of so many beautiful truths of the gospel story. And one of the ways it reminds us this morning is that we who were cut off, who had no right to be at the table, received an invitation because of Jesus' saving work in our lives. And what do we who received an unworthy invitation to the meal do? We commend that to others. We hold that before others, that they too can be a part of God's people. And so, whether you're going, going, or gone, may this table inspire you to live as a people on mission for Christ's sake among the nations.